Secure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMV. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Uh, my name's Joe Anderson, Certified Financial Planner with Mike Benier filling in for Big Al today. Uh, we got Larry Swedro coming up uh, here in the next segment. Larry's been on the show many times. Uh, he's written about 12 uh, personal finance and investing books. Uh, he's written thousands and thousands of blogs um, all over the internet in regards to looking at kind of more of the academic side of the world when it comes to finance and how to manage your money versus the gut feel of, hey, we believe that this is going to happen because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Well, and I think he does such a great job of, you know, putting some of those complex ideas too and, you know, simple examples that I think people understand. Yeah, very much so. Uh, but there's also times too where Larry can... Um, just into, yeah, go go off on the deep end in terms of yeah, like, value what, premium, small premiums. What, what and, the heck is he talking about? You know? Yeah, uh, go to etf.com. Uh, search Larry Swedro. Um, what I want to talk. Um, so if if you're at all interested to kind of figure out what's going on in the overall markets, um, we'll get a little recap of the first quarter. Um, we can talk about um, active management versus passive management. We'll talk about um, different ways to look at um, how to construct the overall portfolio, right? So there's, um, w with our firm at Peer Financial Advisors, you know, we're always looking to get an edge over the markets, right? But there's different ways to do that. You can tie markets and say, this is when we're going to get in, this is when we're going to get out. And there's several people in firms that do that. They think they might potentially have some sort of a crystal ball and they're like, oh, well, our triggers are telling us that it's time to get into the markets or our triggers are telling us that it's time to get out. I mean, I would like to know what the hell triggers that they're talking about. Well, yeah, well, absolutely. And at a certain point, you get enough people making guesses about something. Someone's going to be right. Sure. Right? This year, some managers will outperform the market. But the problem is consistency. Right. And if you look at the studies, no one's ever been able to do it consistently. Right. And um, so that's one way to do it. I mean, Absolutely. that's one way to manage your assets. It's like, OK, well, here, I want to protect you from the downside. So when we feel that the markets are going to go down to, um, you know, 11,000, we're going to get out. We're going to sit in cash right. and, Wait or, for or bonds and or treasuries. And, you know, and then when we feel that the time is right, we're going to get back in. So someone can time it right to get out. You know, they might time it to get out. But you got to time it twice. When do you get back in? Right. You know, and that's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, how we look at it, and then that's one way to try to capture an edge of the market. It's just like, well, man, if I could never lose a dime and only take the upside of the market, I mean, your returns would be thousands and thousands of percent. Sure. And as we all know, that that doesn't happen, right? right. So how we feel that we could get an edge on the, the overall market <clears throat> is this, is that we look at academic studies. And when you look at risk premiums, and what all that really means is that if you invest in certain areas of the market, they're more risky. Because of they're more risky, you should be compensated more for that. So the expected return of those different asset classes are higher, such as smaller companies versus large companies. All right, just a real quick example. We all know that smaller companies, right, they tend to fail. 
So if I'm going to invest in that small company, I would like to have more of that company, right, uh, for my investment dollar versus a larger company that's already stable, that's already pr producing profits, that is highly, um, you know, they have great stability and everything else. Well, they're not going to give me a lot of their company for the same dollar. For an unproven small startup to a big, large company like Google, right, those are two different characteristics of companies. Because of those different characteristics, right, the expected rates of return of those companies are going to be different. The smaller companies are going to have a higher expected return for a couple of reasons. One is that they need your capital. So they're willing to give you more for your capital, right? Because they're small, they're unproven. So for me to invest in them, they have to give me more. And that my investment is... Um, or, right, that their cost of capital equals my expected return. That's Burton Miller won a Nobel Prize on that philosophy. Right. So we look at all right. Well, here we know that there's risk premiums in the overall markets, and we hedge our overall portfolios, or not hedge, but we tilt our portfolios towards those particular areas of the market where we know over time they will outproduce because of the risk factor in those particular. Well, asset and it's classes. looking at the asset classes themselves, right? Because plenty of small companies will, you know, go out of business, and so that's where our belief is. Okay, well, instead of trying to pick what small, you know, going back to the timing of the market or timing companies, what small company is going to outperform, our attitude is, well, let's just buy the whole market, right? Let's buy the entire asset class or the entire category of small companies. Some of those will fail, some will go out of business, but, you know, some will become the next Apple. So that's a way that we can go about capturing that additional premium without taking specific company risk. Right. And so... Um, I'm going to dive in with Larry to get in a little bit more because it's it's not guaranteed by any stretch, right, on a consistent basis because we have found that value companies sometimes underperform growth companies, small companies have underperformed large companies. But over time, right, and when it comes to finance, you have to look at the longest time period available because there's something you can manipulate the data a little bit if you kind of uh, pick and choose what time frames that you're measuring performance on. Well, because if you look at the last several years, the value premium hasn't been there. Right. All right. So if I have this recency bias of, okay, well, what's happened over the last few years, you know, then I wouldn't tend to look at value stocks. But again, if you look at, you know, a lot of, you know, robust information going all the way back to where good information goes on for the market, um, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. Small have outperformed large, or just the stock market in general has outperformed bonds or keeping your money in treasury bills. So it's just trying to capture some some of those premiums and you know a little more risk if I'm tilting towards small in value um, but then at the same time that might allow me to keep some of the rest of my portfolio in much safer types of investments. I, I mean our firm at Pure Financial Advisors we talk to thousands of people about planning for retirement every single year. Um, you know, and, and these are people just like your, your friends and neighbors. I mean people right here in Southern California, right here in San Diego. Um, and the same thing comes up nearly every single conversation is that you know what I don't want to lose a dime. Yeah, I don't trust the stock market. I'm afraid of running out of money in retirement. I mean, does that sound like you? Do you worry about the same things? Do you actually have a plan? I mean, a real plan. Or do you wonder if you have all the pieces of the retirement puzzle? Look, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth, right here on AM760 KFMB. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Back at you here. Uh, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. Welcome to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. I'm with my good friend, Larry Swedro. Uh, Larry, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be with you, Joe. Hey, um, we were talking uh, before we got on the air, and you 
been doing a little bit more research when it comes to the active versus passive and kind of taking a look at a longer time frame. I got a two-part question for you. Is that I, we've discussed for years that an active managed approach, I guess, timing markets and picking stocks doesn't necessarily pan out, or the the probability of success on that is fairly low, um, and the proof is there. But also, when you take a look at how I guess you and I would advise a client to say maybe you want to tilt a portfolio more towards um, smaller companies in value companies because they have a higher expected return. Wouldn't you argue that that is also um, an active type of strategy that we are seeing that, that those asset classes would outperform? Okay, so let's uh, take the two questions. Let's go real quickly over this active versus passive uh, debate. And in this uh, debate, we need to define what we mean by active-passive so we're all on the same page. And uh, I think that not everyone will make the same definitions, but I personally like the one uh, proposed by Gene Fama, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and he said he defined active as those who are engaged in individual stock selection and or market timing. So uh, that's the beginning definition I like. So active managers who do individual stock selection and or market timing, you then could compare their performance to r appropriate risk-adjusted benchmarks. So if someone's an active stock picker of small stocks, you would compare it to the S&P 500. You compare it to a small cap index, for example. Uh, so the evidence there is this. 20 years ago, about 20% of active managers were generating statistically significant alpha or outperformance against those appropriate benchmarks. So you had a one in five chance uh, to find that active manager. But that's pre-tax. After tax, the numbers get about cut in half. So that's a loser's game you know, because the vast majority of people are playing or losing. And unfortunately, for those who have chosen that game, that 20% figure today, even pre-tax, has collapsed down to 2%. And that's the story of my latest book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. So now you've got 50 to 1 odds against you, uh, even before taxes, and about 100 to 1 after taxes of generating statistically significant alpha. So that's why we say it's the loser's game. It's not that you can't win. Every year we can identify about a third of the managers who do it in a year basis. You get out to 10 years now, and those numbers collapse pretty close now, getting close to the zero line. So that, that takes the first question. So let's address this issue of you know, if you invest in build portfolios owning more small caps than the market does or more value stocks than the market does, you're being active. So let's first understand that the alternative is to own a total stock market fund. Let's say in the U.S., a Vanguard total stock market fund. In the U.S., you could own a total international fund. And those funds own small and value stocks. A total uh, Vanguard fund would own about 20% U.S. Uh, small caps, and about 20% of it would be value stocks. Now, let's say you and I want to tilt our portfolio so it owns maybe half the portfolio is small and value stocks. That is clearly an active decision in terms of your asset allocation. Any decision to 
own any asset allocation that's different from the market is an active decision in terms of your strategy. Now the question comes in, how do I implement that strategy? Now there are two ways to implement that strategy of being tilted to small and value. One would be to own active managers who try to do stock picking and market timing. Maybe they even jump in and out of small caps when they think maybe large caps will do better or there'll be a bear market and they should go to cash. But instead of owning all the small stocks, they buy the 50 ones they think will be the best. Uh, and our strategy, which is basically on all the stocks that fit this definition. And uh, that I would call passive in terms of the implementation of the strategy. And for those interested, uh, the fund family that we use mostly, and I believe your firm does as, mo uh, as well, is a fund family called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And at the end of last year, I took a look at the average ranking for their major mutual funds, both U.S. and international. And in the Morningstar database, which includes survivorship bias, so it only includes the funds that have lasted the full 15 years, which means it's missing maybe as many as half of the funds that existed during the period and disappeared because they did so poorly, investors yanked their money, or they were merged out of existence. The average ranking, even pre-tax, for DFA's funds was 21st percentile. So that means they outperformed pre-tax uh, almost 80% of the active funds that even survived, probably 90% of all the funds that existed, and that's pre-tax. You'd probably be at 95% or so on an after-tax basis. So... When you take a look at because that's a risk story, and you've helped educate our listeners for years on on the risk story of saying that well, smaller companies have more risk than larger mm -hmm. companies, therefore you're compensated for that risk. Um, and well, you're compensated for it. It's important, Joe, to add you're compensated with, for it, as I'm sure you know. But for your listeners to make sure, not with higher returns but higher expected returns. And that's the same thing about stocks, that people invest in stocks, not because they have higher returns, because they have higher expected returns. And you could go a decade, as the S&P did from 2000 to 2009, and lose 1% a year right. while T-bills were maybe earning two. So you had a negative equity risk premium of maybe 3% a year. And the same thing is true with small and value stocks. They can underperform for very long times as well. And that must be true because otherwise there'd be no risk and there'd be no risk premium. So you have to be prepared to accept long periods and stay the course. So, all right, looking at that and say our, uh, no, more and more people, I think, are, I wouldn't say more and more, I, I would say a few. I um, mean, the market is more intelligent today than I would guess maybe 20 years ago. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think not only are investors more intelligent because more of them are moving to passive investing, about 1% a year, uh, playing uh, the game uh, that we know as active investing. 1% uh, of them every year are abandoning it. So, yes, I would say they are getting smarter, but it's a slow trend at only 1% a year. And the other uh, problem uh, is... <clears throat> That or the other issue supporting your uh, story of that the market itself is getting smarter is it's getting more efficient because the academics keep discovering the secret sources of the great investors like Warren Buffett and giving us the keys. So we now know that Buffett achieved his great returns not because he was a great stock picker. In fact, 
There's a paper called uh, Buffett's Alpha, which shows if you bought an index of stocks with these characteristics of both value and what economists call quality, so they tend to have low financial leverage, uh, low operating leverage, uh, low volatility of their earnings. If you bought an index of those stocks, you did just as well as Warren Buffett's public holdings. So the market is getting smarter, and it's getting harder to outperform the market itself because the academics publish the research, and then everyone gets to access those characteristics, uh, making the market more efficient. Less, you know, you can't buy stocks that are too cheap anymore because everyone knows about them. And the good news is, is all your clients get to invest the same way Warren Buffett did, without having to pay active managers or hedge funds to get those returns. Well, well and, and I guess to lead more into this is that because they're the market and investors are getting more intelligent. Do you think these risk premiums would ever go away because they that that, that would drive pricing because of demand going into those particular areas? Well, so let's think about that. Uh, it's a great question. It's a very logical. So we know about the equity risk premium, right, Joe? Yeah. We know that stocks have higher expected returns. Everybody knows that, right? Should the equity risk premium go away? What's the answer for, to that question? I, I hope not. Never, right? No. No, it, it shouldn't because <laughs> if it went away, investors would say, there's no premium here. Why would I invest? and they will choose to avoid stocks. So there has to be an expectation of higher returns, which is why stocks today still trade at, let's call it, 16%, uh, 16 times this year's earnings, unlike the fools who wrote the book Dow 36,000, who were telling people the Dow should go to 36,000 and trade it 100 times earnings because there is no risk in stocks if you just hold them long enough. Well, investors are much smarter than that. Everyone's aware of the equity risk premium, but they know that years like 2008 can happen and there was no guarantee we would get out of them. So here's the short answer. If there is a risk story behind these premiums, which we have talked about, then yes, as more people pile into it, just like as more people invest in stocks today than did in the 1940s and 50s because people were scared uh, to invest because of the history of the Great Depression was in their memories, well, then the equity risk premium falls and P.E. ratios come down, but they should never uh, valuation should never go high enough that the equity risk premium should disappear. But the same thing is true for small and value stocks. As more people discover that there's these factors, well, money could come piling in, but if, they, if small stocks got driven up to valuations that they had the same expected returns as large stocks, no one in their yeah, right mind, sanity, would invest in them. So the premiums should still persist as long as there's a risk story there. Hey, Larry, we got to take a quick break. Um, I want you for another segment. I want to talk about forecasts and how well um, some of the best minds, and I guess in our business, um, do when they come to forecasting. I also want to talk about uh, the dividend story. You know, let's get into high dividend paying stocks. I know you always sure. like, like to get into that. So uh, don't go anywhere. All We're right. talking to Larry Swedrow, folks. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 AFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson, certified financial planner. I got Larry Swedro online, good friend, one of the smartest men in finance. And uh, we have the pleasure uh, once a month to get him on our show uh, to discuss kind of what's going on in the world and the markets. Larry, great to have you, my friend. 
My pleasure being back. Hey, you know, I think the last time we talked was January, or maybe it was like in the beginning of February. And of course, um, you know, the market had the worst January of the history of the stock market. And I think a lot of people were freaking. Worst first half of January. Sure. Oh, oh, was it just around in the second half? (laughs) (laughs) But I think the low, I mean, it hit about down 11 or 12 percent, didn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah. And the first two weeks, uh, first 10 days of trading were the worst first 10 days of a January in history, as you stated. And then uh, the market or the the quarter ends and um, the the U.S. markets were up. And one of the largest performing asset classes was emerging markets. And um, I don't think anyone called that. Not not only is anyone call, call it, but as you could guess, Joe, as you know, investors, investors were pulling money out in droves out of emerging markets uh, late in the year of uh, the prior years and the year before and early this year because investors are subject to recency and emerging markets had done relatively poorly over the last several years. And so people like to sell low. Uh, Even though they know selling low is a dumb strategy, they like to buy after things have gone up when valuations are high and expected returns are now lower. and they, as if you could buy yesterday's returns when you and I know we can only buy tomorrow's returns. You know, and the uh, emerging markets were down double digits in the first two weeks. And I was at a conference uh, speaking as a keynote speaker uh, at an annual ETF conference uh, at the same time that Jeffrey Gunlock, who's a favorite of CNBC, highly respected money manager, of Double Line Capital, one of the largest funds now, uh, certainly one of the largest bond-type funds in the world. Uh, and Gunlock is a very, very smart guy, and and people listen. And in January 25th, uh, you know, he told people that emerging markets could collapse, and if you were going to do anything, you should go short. Uh, through yesterday. The market, from the time he said that uh, now, emerging market, uh, Vanguard's ETF was up over 20% uh, since then. So it's a good example of why you should ignore all forecasters, number one, and why the right strategy is ignore the you know, ups and downs of the market. Uh, and if anything, be a rebalancer, which means you're going to buy when everyone else is panicked and selling. You know, it's we can talk about that and talk about it and talk about it, but it's difficult because of the behavior of individual investors. And I think the behavior now, and I'm sure a lot of your clients um, are, are looking for some form of um, income strategy, right? Because you have 10,000 baby right. boomers, you know, turning 65, you know the statistics. And this whole... Um, I want a, a high dividend income um, pain strategy. And I think people get confused that a dividend is like a coupon with when it comes to a bond, but they're, they're two uh, totally separate. Into, I mean, they're, they're two totally different types of securities. Can, let, let, let's talk a little bit about what the pros and cons are, are or, or more or less, why shouldn't people try to frame their foundation of their investment strategy in retirement on a high dividend pain stock strategy? Well, I've written about 10 pieces on this subject on my blog at ETF.com. So any of your listeners want to go and learn more about this, you can go to ETF.com. There's a a tab called Sections, and if you go to Index Investor Corner, and then you could 
you'll see all of the blogs that I've written. You can just look for the ones that have Divin in their name. But here's a really simple way to think about it. I was just having a debate uh, today with a client uh, who was saying, Larry, but hey, I, over the years, I've uh, got these dividends and I reinvested them and I got more stock. And, you know, so I got this compound return. And I said, let me show you how wrongheaded that thinking is. So let's assume that the, uh, that, that company, instead of paying you the dividend, never paid it. All right. Yep. Now, all you did when you paid the div when they when you got the dividend, you took it and bought shares in the company. Your investment is exactly the same, all right, because the stock price drops by the amount of the dividend because a company must be worth less by the amount of cash it just paid out. The stock drops. So if the stock was at 100 and you get a dollar dividend, it's now 99. You buy you know that one the 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 shares at 99 and your investments back up to 100 again and so you're no different than me i own the same company if you will that never paid a dividend the only difference is you got paid the dividend and you paid a capital you paid yeah, a tax. income tax on it all right and we're in exactly the same pace but you got 15% less cuz you paid that or maybe as high as 23.8 in the highest brackets um you know, you paid the tax on the dividend. It makes no sense. Economic theory, financial theory, it's called finance 101 if you want, is that dividend policy should not matter. And the academic research shows that stocks that have, say, the same price-earnings ratio have exactly the same returns whether you pay a dividend or not. Well, and as Warren Buffett said, by the way, he said, I don't pay dividends in Berkshire Hathaway, and if you want a dividend, just create your own. Just sell some shares. That's better. Buffett knows, dumb for him to take a dividend. Why does he want to pay taxes on them? Just let it continue to grow inside the firm. Um. <laughs> Very simple stuff. If you need the dividend, sell some shares. The company, by the way, uh, has excess cash, and it doesn't need to you know, uh, can't find good investments, then what it should do is buy back the stock instead of paying a dividend because now that pushes the stock price up. There are less shares. Uh, okay, outstanding. And now what happens is you, in effect, if, you know, get that in uh, that if you have to sell stock to generate cash flow, you only pay a tax on the portion of the amount that you took that was a gain. Right. When you get the dividend, you pay a tax on the full amount. So it makes no sense for investors who are taxable. Uh, much better if companies never pay dividends uh, and instead always use the cash to buy back the shares. Unless they thought the stock was for some reason overvalued, then they could make a distribution and return your capital. Uh, so, But really, people's focus on dividends is a purely psychological one. Here's what I hear the most, Joe. When the market's down, right. I don't have to sell stock to generate the cash, right? I'm getting my dividends. No. The company, in effect, sold stock for you in the form of that dividend. They could have kept that cash, and the stock price would have been higher. You just sold in taking the dividend. That's exactly the way that you should think about it. You're disinvesting in the company. It's only your choice of the companies. That's all. But either way, you have disinvested 
your 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 equity investment in that stock is now less by the amount of the dividend. And but I, th- that's the the point. But I think most people don't get it. They think it's like a bond in a yep. sense, right? If uh, hey, I have a, yep. a, a right a three percent dividend, right? So I'm going to get the three percent on the share price right. versus no, it's it's not a bond. You are an equity owner of the company. So if the company goes down and loses money, you're going to lose too. Or if it gains money, yep. you will gain. Versus a bond is a contractual right. agreement. So. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, they're just returning your own capital to you. And that, what people don't understand uh, is, is that fact. Now, here's why that happens. Let's say you got a stock trading at $50 a share and they pay a $0.12 cent dividend. Well, you can't see it in the price. The stock price might have even gone up that day. But it would have gone up if they if you're paying let's say a you know a 12 cent dividend it would have gone up by 12 cents more than it went up that day <laughs> right, right. Uh, if it hadn't paid the dividend that's what they don't understand so the noise of the market hides what's going on with the dividend so with all of these strategies ETFs um, that are coming out in some packaged products you know high dividend um, you know you're just going to invest in high dividend comp- or, or paying companies um, do you think that's all marketing uh, I know it's all marketing. There's no rationale for it from a financial perspective, either in theory or from the evidence, as we said. Uh, and by the way, it's actually a really dumb strategy in my mind now because you've got what we know as a crowded trade. By that, I mean the zero interest rate policy of the Federal Reserve has pushed people who take this cash flow approach to abandon safe bonds and buy anything with yield in it and whether it's risky or not so they're buying junk bonds and they're buying dividend paying stocks right and taking that yield and thinking of it as coupon as you said no you're buying a very risky asset which if we get another year like 08 could drop 40 or 50 percent quite easily uh, unlike the treasury bond with that same two percent coupon uh, so, but what's happened, uh, Joe, is this crowded trade, this money rushing in. Div- companies that were high dividend payers, so paying today the average dividend, say, is 2%, so a high dividend is maybe paying 3% or more. The stocks that used to be high dividend payers used to be really value companies, and value companies had higher returns for the reasons that we talked about. They had a high yield relative to price because the price was the stress because it was a risky company. Now these same companies look more like growth stocks because everyone has been buying them up. So now their expected returns are much worse. So you've got all of the risk of these stocks, but you're not getting the same expected premium you used to get historically. It's become, in my mind, a very dumb strategy. Larry, I kept you way too long. Um, I appreciate your time. A wealth, a wealth of knowledge. Hopefully, um, all of our listeners now have a better understanding of what the heck they should do with their money. Uh, that's Larry Swedro. Larry, thank you so much for everything. Uh, we will hopefully get back with you uh, next month. We got to take another break. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, Mike Benier. Uh, wrapping things up today, just got off the line uh, with Larry Swedrow. I got to tell you, if you want more information, um, go to ETF.com, read everything you possibly can, in my opinion, um, 
with Larry Swedrow's name on it. Uh, just uh, a genius in regards to uh, the financial field. Um, we have a very, very similar philosophy of how we manage our clients' assets. Um, his firm manages about 20 some odd billion dollars. We're at 1.3 billion. Uh, so he's a little bit larger, but not by much. Not close. Close. Um, but when, when you take a look at the markets and there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of information out there and it's like, okay, well, what do you listen to? You got to find the academic studies first and foremost to figure out exactly what makes sense, what doesn't make sense versus opinions and forecasts. Well, because there's a I mean, million, I mean, different ways to invest and different opinions and forecasts. And I was just meeting with someone earlier this week that that was their uh, biggest problem was, I mean, there's just so much information out there. You know, this person has this opinion, this person has this opinion. What do I do? But like you said, I mean, if you really look at how the market works and, you know, all this academic research. I mean, that if that supports a certain way, then that might be the way to go. <laughs> Michael Benier, thank you so much for filling in for Big Al. Yeah, no, it's a good good time. Glad I made it. A um, couple of other things here. Go to our website, purefinancial.com. A couple of different things that you want to take a look at there is that we have a webinar series. Um, we have Identity Theft 1 coming up um, in next month. Um, here in the next few weeks, actually May something. I can't believe it's already almost the end of April. Uh, purefinancial.com. Um, if you're listening to this on a podcast, um, more and more people out there on the old podcast thing. Well, I think it's an easy way to listen to something. If you're on your commute, I listen to a lot of podcasts on my way to work, way What's home. What's your favorite podcast? A couple. Um, you know, I mean, I listen to NPR. Also, then on an entertainment side, I enjoy Joe Rogan podcast. Um, a lot of different interesting guests. I mean, kind of across the board. What, um, is it just MMA stuff or no? No. Actually, those are the ones I skip. That um, doesn't interest me too much. But uh, different. Like I was He's just listening to one the other day. Fear Factor guy, right? Yeah, Fear Factor guy. Um, and does get involved with the um, the UFC. But um, just really, actually interesting guy. I was surprised when I first listened to it. Um, but, you know, just listened to one the other day. Had a guy, I forget his name on it. But uh, what his focus was, was building gardens in, like, urban environments and, you know, sort of, you know, big business and how food, you know, works and, you know, what changes they made over the last 50, 60 years. So just things across the board. So just um, something a little different. I know we spend most of our days talking about finance and, you know, I, that's most of my reading and what I listen to. But, you know, it's something a, a little different to um, expand my knowledge beyond just what we deal with on a day to day basis. A couple of things just to recap the show. What I wanted, um, hopefully that you got out of this is that a don't listen to the pundits and don't listen to uh, forecasts. Um, if you really want to be a successful advisor, unfortunately, you probably heard this before, but you have to turn the noise off. You can't necessarily listen to the media. You can't listen to um, <clears throat> Or, or, you know, listen to the media, read the Wall Street Journal, you know, get uh, Kiplinger's or the IBD. All of that is good information, but those are, they're talking about yesterday's stock prices. It has nothing to do with what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow, or the speculation on what's going to happen tomorrow, in my opinion, I think in all the experts' opinions, it's already priced in the stock. So it's very difficult to compete with that because you have thousands and thousands of individuals and billions and billions of dollars that trade hands instantly on a day-by-day -day basis when the markets are open and for you to under think that you might know more than the overall market I think it's just a fool's game um, you have to control your emotions you have to get a plan in place because when you look at things and say all right well if I got my cash flow needs covered in a sense of how much money that I need to draw from the overall portfolio I think that's the first step then if you have a solid tax strategy tax plan in place that you can take a look at different areas in the overall portfolio where you can save money in tax 
right? That's when you look at what the investment strategy is. And one of the biggest things that you want to make sure that you consider or look at in retirement is very low volatility in the overall portfolio. So what do I mean by that? Is that you want asset classes that are highly volatile, but you don't want to have a lot of those asset classes right. in the entire portfolio, right? So how do you control the volatility in the portfolio is that you have to have a mixture of stocks and bonds. And that is going to determine on what your cash flow need is. That's also going to depend on right what your tax situation is to determine what type of bonds that you hold. Right? So there's a lot more planning that goes involved in the front load Right, to make sure that you have appropriate strategy. You want to look at a total return approach and making sure that you're taking advantage of asset classes that have high expected return. What Larry was talking about, and I know he gets fairly deep in the weeds here with risk premiums and things like that. Sure. Smaller companies outperform large. Right? Over time they do. Right? But it's the expected return. It's expected to. It doesn't necessarily mean it happens every single year in if you look over the last 10 years it hasn't right well if you look at the stock market too right i mean historically over time the stock market outperforms keeping all my money in cash or in treasury bills now on a year by year basis i mean that, that's it's why a, if, it's a flip of a coin exactly but if you look five seven ten year periods then a majority of the time it's still not all the time but i guess if i'm going to look at how to build my own portfolio i want to build it based on you know what happens 95 percent of the time as opposed to trying to plan on what could happen that five percent of the time. Right. And so you want to start with the planning first. It's figuring out, all right, well, now what do I need the money for? What is that? Um, What is the the, the cash flow draw? And then you look at a tax strategy, and then you look at the investment strategy to make sure that you're targeting a rate of return that you need, right? Not necessarily what's the highest rate of return possible. We all want a 12, 15% return, right? But if I can live my lifestyle based on a 6% 6% return, you know, then structure the portfolio to try to achieve that. All right, we got to get out of here. Show's called Your Money and It's Your Wealth.